We've enjoyed every moment of this worship service and making ready for the Word of God. We've been singing about the body we cherish, that is the church. And that's my subject this morning. It's always a privilege to do ministry at Eden Baptist. We love and appreciate Dan and Beth and pray for them and your staff and for this body of believers faithfully and have for many, many years. Thank you for the opportunity to come and be with you. I just want to look at three verses in 1 Timothy 3. They're very familiar to you, I'm sure. Paul says, these things I write to you, all that he's written up to this point, and will write in the rest of this letter to Timothy, who's serving the body of believers in the city of Ephesus. In this chapter, dealing with pastors in the diaconate. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. And then he gives us what I'm calling three powerful descriptive portraits of the church, and they're the three that I want to look at this morning. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the ecclesia the called out and gathered together for the purpose of conducting redemptive business for the glory of God and the good of others. The gathered community, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And that truth is always Christocentric in one way or another, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He, or God, was manifested in the flesh, that's the incarnation, the eternal word made flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory, perhaps a small portrait of early New Testament hymnology in the primitive churches of which we are the living extension in the 21st century. My, my text really is verse 15 in those three powerful descriptive portraits of what a church is. The body we cherish, the church of God, which is the platform for Christian ministry and mission in the world. Pray just for a moment, shall we? Thank you, Father, for the privilege of gathering together in the name of our Savior. Thank you for the blessing of all that we have enjoyed and expressed in these last few moments through the ministry of music. Thanks for your saving grace to us in Jesus Christ. We cherish and love you on account of his incarnation as a man and his crucifixion as a lamb. And his resurrection as a victor. And his ascension as Savior. And his, his session at the right hand of the Father as Sovereign. Sharing in cosmic co-regency alongside of you, Father. On, your, on the Father's throne, we're told, of the entire material universe, and in particular, of that spiritual body we call the church. And thank you, too, for his high priestly ministry of intercession in behalf of us. If anyone sinned, John said, we have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And we give you thanks for that reality. Now, Father, I sense my own need of you. I always do, always have in all the years of ministry, and even more so in these latter years, the need for physical stamina and for a mind that can think clearly, a mental clarity, and a softened and warmed heart as an expression of love to you and an open spirit in order to receive the fullness of your spirit. And I ask you for that as we gather together around this text. I'd like to be an unchoked mouthpiece, an uncluttered conduit through which you feel the liberty to speak the precious truth of this text to our hearts and souls and minds and that you'd give us grace to live it out. Give me grace to live it out. So we invite your presence in a very special way and rest in you for all that's needed for the same eternal spirit who first spoke this word through the pen and heart and mind and soul of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus. We pray that that same eternal spirit who first spoke it will feel the freedom to speak it. The flawless message of the text must always come through the flawed messenger. May the Holy Spirit do that in these moments together. And I ask you for these rich blessings in the name and through the mighty blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body we cherish, the church of God, we've been singing about it beautifully. The platform for doing Christian ministry and mission, for building up the people of God gathered and enhancing their witness scattered as they leave this place and go into their world where they live every day. It's undeniably true that God loves his church. We know this because he purchased it with his own blood. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopoi, bishops, to shepherd or pastor or fear, uh, feed the church of God which he purchased the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood or perhaps with the blood of his own. And this can only mean that the church belongs exclusively to God himself by right of redemption. And as F.F. F. Bruce put it, the purchase price was nothing less than the lifeblood of his beloved son. And no stronger affirmation of God's love for his church could be imagined. He purchased it with the blood of his own son. And if God loves and provides for his church in this immensely sacrificial way, Christians should love and provide for it in similar ways as well, even in our 21st century. What is it that spiritually minded people find in Christ's church that makes it such a cherished and celebrated entity? And there are a lot of answers to that question. In a very simple sense, I would say this. Simply stated, the New Testament apostles make it abundantly clear 
in their writings that the only hope for a culture in the throes of barbarism, as their culture was and our culture is, the only hope for a culture in the throes of barbarism is a God-focused, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, biblically shaped, theologically rich, and missionally driven network of dynamic New Testament churches so that the best thing we can do in our post-Christian world is to look to the Bible and think our way back into the heart and soul and the ministry and mission of the first century church and then commit ourselves to being a first century church in our 21st century world. Philip Ryken is right to say this is not traditionalism. This is not irrelevance. This is not living in the past. This is not dancing with dinosaurs. Rather, it is timeless, transcendent Christianity, which is founded on Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday in the first century and today in the 21st century and forever, Hebrews 13 in verse 8. And this is the kind of church that Paul is talking about in this dynamite local church manual on doctrine and decorum as he comes to 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. He's defining what church and what doing church should look like. The shape it takes and the mission it is to fulfill I think express the genius of this unique body that we cherish. So what does it look like? As I said earlier, Paul identifies the church by the use of three powerful, descriptive portraits which explain our deep affection for it and our deep commitment to it and our deep need of it. Paul says the local church is the family of God. It's the house of God. And he says the local church is the community of life. It's the ecclesia of the living God. It's suffused with the life of the living God. It's a community of life. It's the family of God. It's the community of life. And thirdly, it's the sanctuary of truth. It's the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is a home based for the familiarly disenfranchised in a world of fractured families. It's a life base for the spiritually dead in a world suffused with a preoccupation with and almost a love affair with death. And the church is a sanctuary of truth, a truth base for the tragically deceived in a world that is terribly in the grip of falsehood. In this kind of world, this body of Christ really, really matters. Now I want to wade through these as quickly as I can. Number one, the church is the family of God. It's a home base for the familiarly disenfranchised. Paul refers to the body of Christ as the house of God. And the word for house is oikos. I think the ESV has it even better, the household of God. The word for house is oikos. I'm speaking, by the way, from the New King James Version, the New King James Version, because I've been doing it for the last 35 or 40 years. I hope you'll endure it this morning. His word for house is oikos, and this is a term that can mean either a house, that is the building in which the people live, or a household, that is the family that actually occupies the building. Now we know how Paul is using it in this context because he's already used it three times in this chapter. 
in verses 4 and 5, the word shows up once in each of those verses, of the household or the family of the, of the pastor, of the elder, or the, de- uh, the elder or the pastor. And in verse 12, it's used of the household or the family of the deacon in verse 12. So we know exactly how Paul is using that term in this chapter. What Paul is saying is that the church is a family. He's not talking about a building. Rather, he's talking about the family which occupies it. The church is the family of God. By new birth of the Spirit, we become members of the family. Thereafter, we're related to God as our Father, to all fellow believers in Jesus as our sisters and our brothers in Christ. It's a dynamic network of support and love which finds its most profound manifestation in the context of a local assembly of believers just like this one, Eden Baptist Church. The very name's Father, if we can use them. Father and family radically change the whole nature of our relationship to God and one another. Suddenly it, becomes, it all becomes very warm, very relational, very familial. He is our Father. We are His family. There are multiple ways of describing our relationships that are given in the New Testament. It's true that we're subjects of a king and we're servants of a sovereign, we're sheep of a shepherd, and multiple others as well that are beautiful metaphors of what it means to be in the family. But supremely, I think it's right to say, we are sons and daughters of a loving father, familiarly connected as brothers and sisters in God's glorious family. And that's what a local church is. This rings a bell, I think, for a lot of people who live in homes and subdivisions that surround this church and that exist in our culture and civilization, that live in our culture in civilization. This rings a bell for all of us who had difficulty growing up in less than ideal families, and maybe that's some of you this morning. In our culture, there are millions of young people and adults who've suffered the shattering of their support network through the collapse of their families. Many of them are pessimistic and foreboding about the future. On university campuses, the shape it often takes for many is a fascination and preoccupation with death. The watchword on many secular campuses, according to Christian culture watcher Steve Hayner, is live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. So what's the point, Doug? What's the point you're making to us here this morning? And I think Paul's point is this. We all live and do ministry in a world of fractured families. And we need to care very much about this. It's Paul's deep conviction that Jesus Christ alone can redeem this catastrophe and fix this problem. He can change it, that huge emotional deficit, that awful vacuum of loneliness that many people grow up with and that haunts them throughout life. Tragic void of hopelessness due not only to the depravity of our fallen nature, yes, it is due to that, but also to the decay of the family. Jesus Christ can redeem this by redeeming them and placing them in God's family. When we come to faith in Christ alone for our salvation, he rescues us from our sins, he saves our souls. 
He delivers us from our emptiness and our hopelessness and our meaninglessness as he radically resets our rudder, suffuses us with forgiveness, fills us full of hope, and places us lovingly into his family. And that is what an authentic church is. It's not all that it is, but that's what it is. It is the family of God, the household of God. The church is God's good family in man's broken world. It's a very significant part of our calling and ministry as first century Christians and churches in a 21st century world is to, be, is, is to be a place where relational warmth, gospel truth, comprehensive and full biblical exposition and guidance, and familial love can be found. And if we fulfill this function biblically and compassionately, I think we'll impact our world rescuingly and redemptively for Jesus Christ. Because for some people, and there are sprinklings of them, I think there are probably a lot of them all around this church, and they're certainly around the church I'm a member of, Family Baptist Church in the Urban Core in North Minneapolis, the heart of North Minneapolis. But it's not just an urban problem. It's a suburban and an ex-urban and an edge city and a rural problem. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. For some people... This church may be the only real family that, will, that they will ever know. Now, I know this from Scripture. I think that's what's being said here and in other parts of Scripture. But I also know it from personal experience. My familial pedigree has never been considered very impressive. I'm the son of a bartender, a very heavy drinker, which brought a lot of dysfunction into our family for myself and my two younger sisters and especially for my mom. The son of a bartender, the grandson of a Detroit gangster, my first encounter with family, as it was ordained by God to be, was in the context of a local church in the small village of Montrose, Michigan, where I was raised. I can say that I brought nothing of value or status to the small community of believers in Montrose Baptist Church, except my eternal soul as a creature made in the image of God. And that was enough for that body of believers, that miniature body of believers. The church is still there. It's still biblical, still preaching the gospel. It's a church of about 60 or 65 people when I first connected, meeting in a little country schoolhouse. About 35 of the members of that church were teenagers who were pumped about Jesus Christ. And I rubbed shoulders with them on a daily basis in my public school and was attracted to them. The light that was in them was a loving rebuke to the darkness that was in Doug, and the salt that they were gave me a thirst for what they had. For the first time as a teenager in a local Baptist church, I saw, felt, and experienced, at least vicariously, the warmth and wealth of a real family, and through that experience and the exposure to the gospel that it provided for me, I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ as a 16-year-old boy. Montrose Baptist Church was, to me, God's good family in my broken world. And I think that is precisely what Paul was calling all of us to be in this text that we are addressing we are the family of God. 
And there are people all around of us, all around us, who need that family. I like to say, and my, my wife always wants me to say it, that my father came to live with us the last eight years of his life. And after a four-year journey in our home, at the age of 72, he said, Doug, I want to talk to you. And we sat down and he said, Doug, I want to become a Christian. And I led my dad to Christ when he was 72. He died when he was 76 for four years. Sanctification set in. That's not quite enough to clean everything up. But it was enough for him to say, to learn how to say, I love you. And how to settle an argument without blowing the house apart. And to say when I would go away with, in those days, less Olala, to preach in various contexts or teach in this context or that, my dad would say, Doug, I'll be praying for you. My bartender dad was going to be praying for me. I give thanks to God for his work in my dad's life, my mother's life, and others in our family. So Paul says, you are the family of God. Be what you are. This is what you are. Be what you are. Where God has sovereignly and strategically placed you in this wonderful, perhaps somewhat affluent, but terribly needy community. And be all that God intends for you to be as the family of God, a home base for the familially disenfranchised. They're all around us. Secondly, the church is the community of life. It's a life base for the spiritually dead. Secondly, Paul refers to the, to the body of believers there as the ecclesia of the living God, the gathered community called out from the world system, gathered together as the people of God to conduct God's redemptive business on planet Earth, you are the church of the living God. So it's no surprise that biblical churches like this one, and I know this is true of this church, God has blessed this ministry over these many years. I can see it every time I come and sense it and feel it and know it. But it's no surprise that biblical churches are living, pulsating entities. They are suffused with the life of the living God. Scripture, scripture always defines God as the living God. makes quite an issue of it, Old Testament and New Testament. Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures. The life of the living God. Always defined, God is always defined as the living God and always in deliberate contrast to the lifeless and useless idols which plague every generation and every culture on planet Earth. And they, they plague our generation as well. Money, sex, and power, the unholy trinity, the triune godhead, small g of the devil. The living God replaces all of that. The Apostle Paul defines Christian conversion as nothing less than turning to God, that's faith, away from idols, I think that's repentance. Conversion is turning to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. And when we turn toward God in faith, the living God imparts his life to us too. You hath he quickened, the old King James says. It's antiquated uh, language, but it's, it's beautiful. You hath he quickened. You hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Where does the living God live? We all know. So I won't spend long here. We all know where he lives. First, God lives in each and every believer individually because our bodies, Paul said, are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So we know he lives there. He lives in us in some mysterious, I guess. It's a mystery. He takes up residence 
in the human spirit somehow. Our dead human spirit is impregnated with the life of the divine Holy Spirit, and we are quickened and made alive and inhabited by that Holy Spirit. One of the things this means is that when we become Christians, when you became a Christian, God did not give things to you. He gave himself to you. And that, he, he did that because he knows that's what we need. We don't need things. We need him. He gives himself to us. He lives within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think it is possible to have, particularly in our kind of affluent world, it is possible to have everything that you want only to discover sooner or later that you do not want anything that you have. Because they always disappoint if that's where our focus is. Things don't have it in them to meet our needs. Only Jesus Christ does. So individually, Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Where does, God, where does the living God live? He lives in you and in me. But he also lives and dwells, the living God dwells in the church corporately, not only in us individually, but in the church corporately because the gathered community, as we are this morning, you're the gathered community here of believers in Eden Baptist Church. The gathered community, the church met together as the congregation in local assembly is the habitat of God. It's the dwelling place of God. Paul said so in Ephesians 2, verse 22, in whom you, and, the, and, and that second person personal pronoun is plural, referring to the whole corporate body met together, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in or by the Spirit, Ephesians 2, 22. The church corporately is the community of life because it's inhabited by the living God. He's here with us in a very unique and special and powerful sense. Every time we gather together, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. All the little words in the Bible are important. This is the little Greek particle, eke, E-K-E-I, eke. It means in that place, literally, the lexicon says. For where two or three to gather together in my name, in that place, I am with them. And where is he? In the middle of them, in the midst of them. And that Greek word meso for midst means in the very middle of them. Every time we gather together, there is a unique, almost mysterious presence of God with the people of God. The living God settles not amongst us in a unique and powerful way whenever we gather together as a corporate body for worship and service. He's right in the midst of us, right there with us, watching and weighing all that is going on. And, and, and this is why we should be driven never to do anything that might offend his watching eyes or his listening ears or his holy heart. Why is this so important? Does this have anything to do with mission and ministry? Why is it so important that you are a community of life, a living, pulsating body with the energy and the dynamism of God himself, the living God at work in you and among you as you come together and through you before the watching world? The reason that this idea of your being a community of life is important is because we live in a culture that is suffused with, with death. Our cultural preoccupation, rather, our cultural justification 
of abortion, 62 million plus since Roe v. Wade. Our cultural justification of that procedure of abortion and even infanticide, born alive but not protected. Our cultural justification of abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, and physician-assisted suicide is graphic evidence of our love affair with death. And I don't think it's too too strong to say that, a love affair with death. I love the eighth chapter of Proverbs. It's an essay on God's wisdom, on divine wisdom. And wisdom speaks out in, in, in that chapter, Proverbs 8. We don't have time to go there. Wisdom is personified as a lovely lady in Proverbs 8. And the Bible says that she raises her voice on the heights, at the crossroads, beside the gate, which would be the city hall of a city the gate where the official business was transacted, and at the entrance of the portals, all of it in the public square, and this is where divine wisdom is missing and where it's desperately needed, in the public square. Wisdom makes her appeal to the stubborn and to the simpleton and to the fool and to everybody else who passes by. And what does she say? The last two verses of Proverbs 8, this is what she says, for whoever finds me finds life, exactly, Divine wisdom is all about life, not death. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me, our culture despises. We live in a culture that despises God's wisdom. Romans 1.28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They excised God from their thought constructs from their body of knowledge, from their wisdom. They did not like to retain God there. All those that hate me love death. And that is what is happening in our culture. Abortion and infanticide, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide. Peter Singer, one of the world's leading international bioethicists who teaches at Princeton University, has said and written many ugly things, terrible things, bestiality and all the rest, it's all there in print, has said that nobody has a right to live just because they're human. And every young couple should have the right to make a decision after the birth of a child, maybe up to 12 months, maybe up to 18 months, to make the decision whether or not they really want this child and want to keep it. Maybe it's too much trouble. We can't do all the things we used to do. We've lost our freedom. Nobody has a right to live just because they're human, he said. And if you decide within that prescribed, according to him, period of time that you don't want the child, then just euthanize him. Our culture has a love affair with death. This is why this community of life. You speak life into this world. This is why the church is the community of life, living and doing ministry in a culture of death, resonates with some of the deepest needs of our time. Every authentic body of believers must proclaim the message of life in Jesus Christ. But it must do more than that. It must model the life-transformative impact of that eternal life on each one of our individual lives 
so, so that people get the message that Jesus Christ really makes a difference in a person's life, in a marriage, in a family, in a community of faith. They need to see that. You're the community of life that resonates with the needs of our times. In my opinion, we should all have the spirit of the prodigal's father when his rebellious son came to his senses and returned home. You know the story of the prodigal son. The father said, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Why? For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to be merry. The church, the body of Christ, the local assembly is the community which God has made alive. It's populated by people who were lost and are now found, who were dead and who are now alive. And every time we gather for worship, we should do it the way we did this morning. It was wonderful. We should have the spirit of the prodigal's father. We should be joyful in God every time, every day we should be joyful. We were dead and now we are alive. We were lost and now we are found. We should be joyful in God, worshipful in spirit, biblical in conviction, and missional in heartbeat. That is, longing for others to taste of this life as well. Because we are the community of life in a world suffused with death. We are a life base for the spiritually dead. That's what Paul says we are. That's what we are at Family Baptist downtown where Lee Ormerson pastors. He's a godly and a wonderful pastor. Every New Testament local church is the family of God in a world of fractured families. It's the community of life in a world suffused with death. And I have only a few moments. I don't know when I'm supposed to get done, but I've got to get done pretty soon, I think. Third, the church is the sanctuary of truth. It's a truth base for the tragically deceived. Because Paul says, you are, in addition to all the rest of this, you are the pillar and the ground of the truth. Think of that. The pillar and ground of the truth. That's what this and every biblical New Testament local church is. I know that sanctuary is a term that has been politicized and demeaned as a result of it in our culture, but sanctuary is a wonderful term properly understood. The sanctuary is the place of safety and security. It's the place of refuge when someone or something is suffering persecution or affliction. That's what a sanctuary is. This is precisely what the church is in behalf of the truth. You are the sanctuary of truth, the pillar and ground of the truth, because truth is being brutalized in our civilization. In the secular academy and media where we expect it, but also in large segments of concessive Christianity where the truth is being demeaned. The unfortunate reality is that far too many churches have reduced their truth claims because too much truth doesn't foster church growth. And People would rather not hear some of that stuff. So they reduce their truth claims to the lowest common denominator in order to attract the largest possible crowd. This is a brutalizing of truth. For believers who take Christ's claims on their lives seriously and who are thirsting for authenticity in their personal lives and their local assemblies, this is a clarion call for the body of Christ to be utterly committed to absolute loyalty to absolute truth. I have to park by truth for just a few moments. You're not long. This will be my last visit here probably. I think truth, I believe truth is the fundamental moral category 
in the universe. I believe God is the fundamental reality in the universe, of course. But I believe that God's truth is the fundamental moral category in the universe, and I think there are a lot of biblical texts that would help us to support that idea. The point is that without truth, people and the civilizations they create unravel at the seams, just as ours is unraveling at the seams. And Solomon said it would be so. He said, where there is no revelation, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no revelation, where there is no word from God conveyed through the prophets and disseminated among the people or through the apostles in the New Testament era and disseminated among the people and the culture, where there is no revelation, no truth from God, the people cast off restraint. Exactly. Just look around. It's a very aggressive term. It's one verb, cast off restraint. Parua is the Hebrew verb. It means to run wild, to break loose, to let go and to let loose. It means to be unrestrained. It means to give free rein to wild passions. This is how it's used. You'll find it in Exodus 32 in verse 5 at the foot of, the, of Mount Sinai as Moses comes down with the two tablets of the law and all those of those commandments were being broken before his eyes. Exodus 32 and verse 25. And that verse, that verb, parua, is translated twice, naked. They uncover, they let loose, they let go, they break loose, they run wild. In other words, whenever there is a tr truth deprivation, as is happening in some concessive churches, People are being deprived of truth, even inside the body of Christ. Wherever there is a truth deprivation, or as there is in our secular society, a truth renunciation, wherever this is, people erupt in irresponsible, profligate behavior, and public morality descends into the abyss. Exactly what we're living with now. How this church resonates with the need of this world. This is a truth base, always has been. But humankind needs more than all else is access to the truth. And God has ordained that churches like yours, New Testament local churches, are to be the pillar and ground of the truth. That is our double responsibility to the truth. We are to be the ground of it, that is its support and buttress against all attacks upon it. And we are to be the pillar of it. We're to be the pillar of the truth. As the ground, the church holds truth fast. It won't let go of it. It defends it. As the pillar, it holds truth high. It thrusts truth high. That's what pillars do. They hold things up for all to see. They make things conspicuous and visible before the watching world. In fact, the word pillar, stilos is the Greek word, the word pillar is used in the New Testament of both personal and corporate leadership. In Galatians 2, in verse 9, Paul says that Peter, he's called Cephas there, but it's Peter, Peter, James, and John were pillars. It's the same word, leaders in the church at Jerusalem. And in this text, the local New Testament church is to take the leadership in the body within the, within the context of the church, but disseminating it into the culture, take the leadership in defending the truth against attack, disseminating, which means to sow the seed. Semnos is the word for seed. To disseminate is to sow the seed. 
disseminating the truth into a deceived world and displaying the truth in our own personal lives so that we can't be accused of hypocrisy. And if the church fails in this task, there is nowhere else to go for truth. Nothing is more important than access to truth. Paul says the truth is in Jesus, Ephesians 4.21. And the psalmist says, and so do the New Testament authors, the truth is in Scripture. The entirety of your word, Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety, the totality, the sum of your word is truth. Exactly. For Paul, the church is the sanctuary which God trusts with the fundamental moral category in the universe. Absolute truth. So this is what the church is all about. I've gone too long, haven't I? I'm done now. This is what the church is all about. Family. It's about family. It's about life. It's about truth. These are the rich resources that God has entrusted to every one of us in our churches. In a world of fractured families, it's critical that the body of Christ fulfill its mission as the family of God. In a world suffused with death, it's critical that the body of Christ fulfill its calling as the community of life. In a world drowning in falsehood, in the grip of the lie, it is critical that the body of Christ fulfill its mandate as the sanctuary of truth. And this mandates, we all know what this mandates, it mandates a robust, not an anemic, a robust body of life. You've been blessed with rich and wonderful, expositional, Christ-centered, God-centered, preachment and teachment for the entirety of your journey. You're blessed. It produces a robust body of believers, not an anemic body of believers. It's a call for repudiation of low-level commitment or what some people call bargain basement discipleship or light L-I-T-E, Christianity, or easygoing self-indulgence, or couch potato lazing, or cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to it. Away with that. Instead, high-level, deep-seated commitment which takes the form of cross-shaped, Christ-like, sacrificial ministry. It's a call for, I think it's a call for great commandment love. First, not chronologically, but in terms of importance, the first and greatest commandment, what is it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Probe that word strength, particularly in Deuteronomy 6. It's the word that means muchness. With all your heart, soul, mind, and muchness, every particle of your anatomy given over to it. It's a call for great commandment love and it's a call for great commission passion for the lost people of our world because they have such needs and the church as the family of God, as the community of life, as the sanctuary of truth is the only entity on the planet that can meet those needs. Let's pray that we'll be such a people. Thank you Father for the privilege of being in this good church for the way you've blessed it over the years and strong staff and people, a godly Senior pastor, thank you for Dan and Beth. Give them some rejuvenative time right now. Recharging the batteries. Bless and enrich them and this good body of believers and help us all to take seriously the mandate to be what we are, according to the Apostle Paul. Paul said, this is what you are. And I think he calls us to be it, to be what we are 
in our desperately needy world. Speak to our hearts. Speak to my heart. Help me to live it out myself and all of us as individuals and in the corporate body we call Eden Baptist Church. In the name and through the mighty blood of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.